Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. Apologies about the brief delay in the issuing of these podcasts, which was due to various distractions, such as the Venice Biennale and the end of term here in Kingston. But I'm happy to say we'll be issuing a podcast every two weeks or so over the summer, so do stay with us. In this episode, Matt Wells interviews Alex Gore and Dingle Price of Price Gore Architects. Matt Wells uh, teaches here in Kingston. He teaches an undergraduate and a master's and also works in the ETH in Zurich. While Alex Gore runs third year here in Kingston and runs a unit in third year jointly with Dingle. This link between practice and education forms a strong part of this conversation. Price Gore have established a clear position for themselves within the London architectural scene with work which is clearly cited in history and an understanding of precedent and typology which also chases figuration and the exploration of archetype in the making of their characterful work. I do hope you enjoyed the podcast. So, Andrew Clancy normally welcomes uh, the interviews to the school, but this doesn't feel quite right because both of you have taught here for much longer than me. Alex, you're an alumnus and basically part of the furniture now. So, let's start instead by uh, talking about how you both came to study architecture and how you established a practice together. Yeah, for me, it was it was fairly straightforward. You know, there were certain things when I was studying art at college um, that were interesting, but I guess, like most people, architecture is a bit of a mystery until you uh, get onto a degree course. And the, you know, I did the degree course here. I think I started off quite well, had a really good first year. By the end of it, I was sort of quite confused, which I think just comes from having a whole load of stuff thrown at you that you have to process. And it wasn't until, I guess, a few years later, after I'd been working for a bit, that I started to find things like the work of Florian Bagel and Philip Christou, things that were to do with kind of time, broader ideas that I could sort of relate to, and that, that, that felt that, okay, actually, architecture is really, really quite interesting. And then studying with Florian and Phil for a few years, and that is in fact where Dingle and I met. And then working for a series of very small practices and doing interesting things on the edges of London and in cultural fields, starting to teach. Yeah, so in, in many ways it's kind of quite conventional routine, but um, there, were, there, there were moments of doubt and you know, epiphanies along the way. Hmm. How about you, Dingle? Uh, well, after school, I did an art foundation, and it was a really fantastic art foundation at Bourneville College of Art in Birmingham. But they didn't really send, they didn't really direct students towards architecture. So I was clearly sort of three-dimensionally, that was, I guess, my strength. So I went to study furniture design, and I started at Nottingham Trent and didn't get on so well with it, I moved to Ravensbourne College in South London, and the degree there was three-dimensional design. And so I started with furniture, and then by the time I was in third year, I shifted on to interior design. And uh, I finished that. I worked uh, in interior design. I worked on some restaurants, posh restaurants, and stuff like that. And I guess I was always a bit frustrated that I wanted to work on bigger things. So I guess it was a journey from starting with an interest in furniture towards interiors, towards architecture. And then I started working for architects. So um, I worked for a very short time for 6A architects. I then took my part one exam as an external candidate uh, with the RIBA and continued working, worked for an architect called Peter Beard, and Peter was a uh, former employee of Florian Bagel. So he introduced me to Florian uh, and to Philip, and through that I became interested in the CAS, went to the CAS, met Alex, and so on. <laughs> so, would you say, I mean, as well as very much being the moment where you two met, Arrow and Florian Phil's work is a kind of a bit of an important touchstone in, in, in where, where you got to and then where you've come from. Yeah, it is a, yeah, I guess it is a touchstone. I mean, it's something that, you know, there are recurring themes in our work and the things that we talk about, um, I guess, on an almost daily basis that I guess you, you could trace back to Florian Phil. And, mm. and it was a really interesting 
I think it was an interesting moment at the CAS, sort of 2006, 2007. There were a lot of young practices now emerging that were there at that time. I think Florian Fields, Fells were. You know, their work was kind of changing at that time. They were mm. kind of moving quite rapidly in their thinking. Yeah. Um, and I think we were kind of all caught up in that. So it, it definitely felt like a kind of something was happening there. And I guess it was getting onto a bigger stage as well. I remember it at Venice in was it 2008 or 2010. It was beginning to become moved away just from kind of London or or a kind of um, a slightly niche uh, scene. Not that that's a bad thing. But do you mean Florian and Phil or do you mean the cast? Florian and Phil and the cast as well, I guess. I mean, it kind of was really beginning to ramp up. I think it's true that, um, I mean, I think the cast has been a fantastic school for a long time. And I would say... Yeah, I mean, Florian and Phil, I think their work was quite well known in mm. certain circles. Their work is quite international. Most of the work, I mean, a large part of the work is in Korea. So I think they're quite well known. Yeah, it's difficult to say whether something changed in terms of their international reputation because their, their reputation, they were, they were always more appreciated abroad than they were mm. here. I mean, from, from an inside perspective, it's difficult to kind of know. In a sense. I mean, I remember. I remember this moment, I think we had the, the, whatever the version of the school assembly was at the time, and mm. various external critics came in, and, or, or perhaps it was even a lecture that Florian and Phil gave, and, and there were these kind of comments, people were quite confused about the direction that their work was taking. Hmm. Um, yes, they had former students um, accusing them of being turncoats. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thinking, basically, um, basically sort of suggesting that their heritage was really some sort of modernism. Mm-hmm. And that they were becoming uh, postmodern. Mm. It was yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Yeah. And I guess around that same time, they made this sort of particularly strong relationship with Peter Merkley. Mm. And I think yeah, yeah, a shift from horizontal things to vertical things mm. on, on a very simple level. Yeah. I mean, remember that being one of the comments. So they did three big buildings in uh, Paju Book City, which yeah. of course they master planned, and uh, the first one. I guess it, you can say its roots are in modernism, uh, and then there's a middle one which um, is a brick building which is clearly stepping away, and the third one has lots and lots of architectural references. It draws from Renaissance painting, uh, yeah. and so on. I can imagine that being quite—I mean, both quite exciting and quite inflammatory in 2006. <laughs> I think so. I think there were some divisions and questioning within the school, but I think it was healthy. I mean, they'd been at the school for so long and were so established that within the school, I think it didn't take long for people to turn and follow, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, beyond the school, I think there was a lot of um, interesting questions about it. So you both studied together and then went away again and worked for separate architects. So at what point did you form the practice? We worked, we worked for, I mean, over the years we've worked, so we've both worked for Peter Beard, but mm. at different times, and both David Cobb, but at different times. I think those are the overlaps. Yeah. And then there are several other practices in there. Um, and I guess it was a couple of years after graduating that you said Dingle set up on his own. Mm. Um, well, at the time I was with David Conn, and then I guess it was 18 months after that that I left David. Yeah, so I set up. I said I've been 2011, although it was quite a fledgling practice. I was relying a lot on teaching, teaching income. And yeah, 2013, December 2013, I'm pretty sure, is when Alex and I teamed up a slightly larger commission uh, for a house. And what is it, what is it like at the moment in 2000 and, well, we're in 2018 now, but what is it like in 2018 being a pair of young architects, you know, you live in East London, the office is in Peckham, you know, is it as glamorous as that sounds? It's more glamorous than that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, is there, um, you know, there are all sorts of issues that have been raised over the past few years about the opportunity for young architects, about, you know, issues with the way procurement is led in the UK, Um, issues to do with office space now is nowhere near as cheap as, say, it was five, ten years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, How is it operating, you know, as as a, a kind of nimble and, and, and emerging practice? Well, I guess to answer one of those questions, or maybe two, Peckham, we were drawn to Peckham because we got a really nice studio, really, really cheap, hmm. simple, <laughs> basically an artist studio, part of a process, I think, of 
as buildings use for art studios, being taken over by graphic designers, architects and so on, and I assume at some point we will be moved out. Um, PR, media, Yeah, exactly. It'll become like uh, the tea building in Shoreditch. Yeah. Uh, you can see it happening. I, th- I think, I could be wrong, I think it's like that. It will, it will. I mean, Peckham has been, I, I think it's been kind of surprisingly resistant, but I think it will, will happen. It's just in terms of where it is in London, it's incredibly well connected, which is useful for us. Yeah. Um, but it's changed slower than, more slowly than I thought and in terms of nimbleness well I guess you know one can draw on income from a range of sources we've both talked since before we started our practice I wouldn't say it's really for the income primarily but it helps I think we're fortunate in that a lot of architects slightly higher up the food chain people we work for and people um, we've come across through teaching at lectures, uh, the community have um, passed work onto us. Yeah, I mean, and I guess, I mean, I guess you know, things like we've talked about this before about the Architecture Foundation actually uh, trying to not only kind of you know publicise the work of young and emerging practices, but also actually help them connect with clients and win work. Other organisations perhaps um, not doing this. That maybe you would like to do this, though maybe things are changing with some of the the way Croydon Council are beginning to operate. Um. I know what you mean. I mean, there are lots of organisations, and I think a lot of them are led by architects, or mm. even um, or even uh, groups of architects and uh, you know inventive uh, developers that are kind of organising these kind of get-togethers or you know, evenings where you all sort of meet and chat, or there might be a series of petrocutures, you know, just to kind of get things being discussed and I think I suspect those things are very good at making connections and mm. in the medium term those relationships lead to projects yeah. um, which is a good thing but it, you know, generally procurement is tough especially for a small practice and a small practice that wants to I guess in many ways take its time mm. and get things right and so you know, a world where you have to be able to sell yourself pitch it uh, almost before you've done the work is, is quite difficult um, I mean we're getting to a point now where those things are becoming slightly easier we have got commissions from local authorities and um, you know, they'll be finished uh, soon and published hopefully and people will like them and it might lead to more work but it's taken a long time to get to that point yeah and a few a few invited competitions so mm, we still do some open competitions but now we tend to wait for competitions where we're invited so we might be one of five and usually when you're invited they know what you like and you're competing against people of roughly similar stature so yeah yeah i guess things are changing a bit yeah we, i mean in terms of open competitions i guess we've become a lot more wary about doing them uh, and i think it's primarily because you know you put a lot of effort in and you invest in them and quite often, perhaps the juries aren't as good as they should be. I mean, that's the thing that we often come back to in trying to debrief ourselves. As well. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've been really practising. I did two competitions last year, and I did kind of wonder, you sit in a room with ten-plus people, and you wonder who's making the decision here. I could be wrong, but I think in Britain, I mean, we do competitions across Europe, but the, I think in Britain the... Jury panels tend to be one architect who has is not in a position of strength, mm. and I think in Europe you have really good architects on juries, multiple architects on really good juries all the time. You can explain things, yeah, articulate a position, you know, when they see a range of projects, mm-hmm. and there's a consistency to things as well. I think on the you know on the you know like the Swiss, I think it's the Swiss model where there's always a certain scale model that has to be produced for competition. It's always the same model, and everyone knows that you do that. So yeah. there's no kind of question about whether you do design work or not, or whether you do this or not. It's interesting, it's about the, sort of the com- comparability of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And it's very, it's quite clear, in, even in the 19th century, there's no consensus on architectural competitions in the UK. So no, this no, is no. not a kind of... No, no. Well, you wrote about that recently, didn't you, about <laughs> yeah. this, uh, the, 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 the perspective that sort of cheats and... Yeah, exactly, and what's more truthful, and then, but then also, again, you know, the kind of people who make up the competition panels, it's kind of problematic, it's kind of well established. Wasn't there a rule at some point, I think in Stone's time, 
where you couldn't do perspectives for competitions, yeah. where you could only do plans, sections, elevations, etc. And the perspective was considered to be, um, I think in Tone's words, uh, too beguiling, that somehow it was deceitful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you still see that in the 50s, you know, the competitions that the Smithsons and uh, Sterling are doing. The, the competition drawings were serious architectural drawings, a set of plans and elevations that had to be read and understood. Mm. Um, and that, therefore one presumes, you know, the jury has to be able to read them and understand them or have people that can do that translation for them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe times have changed for architects. I mean, I think, I suspect that we think more in perspective than we certainly were more in perspective than than you would see in those architects from that period I think yeah perhaps perhaps I mean uh, yeah I've I've always sketched in perspective alongside a series of plants yes yes, I do do think through spaces in that way yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily a new thing. Well, no, I remember in your, in your office the other day you were talking about how quite often the plan is just something that happens from the forces of all the other things, like the perspective and the model and the section, perhaps. Mm. So it's kind of not a, not a surprise. So Sterling, okay, so that's the segue mm. from Sterling into... There's at least two or three segues. segues Are we talking about Sterling yet? Only very briefly. You know, so you've talked together at Kingston for three years now? Is that right? Oh, third year. This is third year. This is your third year. So two years ago, you looked at Jim Sterling and Michael Wilford, and then uh, with the students, and then last year it was Rossi, and that was the old kind of enviable tour across northern northern Italy. So I kind of thought that Venturi or um, Venturi Scott Brown or Michael mm. Graves might be next, but that's pretty, you know. But then you've done it, taken a slightly different course, and you've been looking at Central European housing, loose, Mies, Pleasnik. So how does the way you practice influence the teaching, and vice versa? Good question. It's, 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 I, I think there are probably many answers. I mean, to a certain degree, a lot of it is filling in gaps in our own education, or things that, you know, an interest in Sterling, who wasn't really talked about when I was studying, or perhaps I wasn't listening, um, came out of a project that we a competition project that we did for a big museum and we started looking at the plant of things like the Schwarz Gallery and just realising how extraordinary they are. Mm. And then and then the teaching buys you time and space to look at these things and talk about them with a you know, an enthusiastic bunch of students. Um, uh, and at the end of the year you know a lot more than you did at the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah so I mean, that's one aspect. I guess I guess it was spurred to some extent by the exhibition of drawings at the RIBA, Sterling's drawings, oh, not at the RIBA, sorry, at the Tate, in the Claw, which was a really good exhibition. So that was part of it, and there was a symposium yeah. as part of that. Yeah. Which was a very weird event. It was a bit weird, <laughs> but I, think, I thought some of it was good. I yeah, thought, absolutely. Um, and I guess what you see with Sterling, perhaps, is a bit like... To some extent, what you might say we, we experience with Florin and Philip, that uh, a journey from a modernist to someone becoming interested in richer architectural culture and a transformation, really. Um, so we were drawn to that. I think we were instinctively drawn to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose Sterling's, uh, Sterling's desire, it's quite openly stated desire, I think he talks about it in a lot of his lectures and uh, award speeches that you know he wants the freedom to be able to draw from any part of architectural history it all feels valid and he doesn't mm. want the restraint of just having to work with you know, a restricted modernist language and, and and so that's another part of what we're doing with the teaching is just keep learning in a minute it's not that complicated <laughs> <laughs> no no of course i mean um so how come the change now how come the, was it the change now to the kind of central European houses of the 20s and 30s and 50s? Well, you're exactly right in thinking we partially planned a a year based around Venturi Mm -hmm. and a trip to uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia. I think maybe we'd had that in the back of our minds since the start of the previous year when when we set off with the Rossi brief uh, and trip. And maybe by the time we got around to do it, we'd slightly moved on. <laughs> we had been looking at 
at uh, Venturi yeah. quite a lot yeah. uh, already. Um, and I would say, what were the defining factors in us moving on? We were designing a house. Joseph Frank became important. Yeah. Um, we looking at a lot of Lichens and Voicey and Baby Scott. Yeah. Big houses, grand sort of representational rooms, you know, a service wing, um, you know, a relationship with the landscape. Yeah. Simple things, simple architectural house things. And we realised uh, we realised this is a quite extraordinary period at the early uh, 20th century. We're not that far apart. You have people like Lutjens, um, Le Corbusier, Luce, uh, working in quite different ways. Um, and, um, yeah, and Plechnik, of course, and that became really, really interesting. Yeah. Again, I guess it's, again, it's the, in a way it's similar to Sterling, similar we've been talking with. Florian and Philip, that uh, uh, this sort of transition um, from modern to something other, or vice versa, is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and the more, the more we sort of pulled out and made photocopies of houses from the first part of the century, we realised that 1930 was this really interesting point where you could get something extremely classical or something extremely modern or something that's a hybrid there was such variety around, you know, like five years either side of 1930. It was kind of amazing. Um, yeah, so we saw uh, Villa Muller, and ne- almost next door to Villa Muller we saw another house, which was by... A student of Plechnik. A student of Plechnik. Rothmeyer. Yeah, both from 29 or 30 or 31. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we saw uh, Villa Wittgenstein, hmm. which I think is also 1930. We saw Villa Tugendart. 1928 or 31, I think. Or we saw Plechnik's house, I think 1930. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Castle Drogo's being built. <laughs> yes, <laughs> finished. I mean, it took a long time. Yeah. But Why is it I mean, still not finished? Well, it's still not finished. I mean, it's only about half, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they, those are it's an amazing series of buildings to take the students to. Because in some ways, whilst... You know, it's just doing the East Allen a little bit. But whilst Mies is both incredibly rich, he's also really good to show undergraduate students because it's it's kind of it's very easy for them to get certain things that maybe you've been talking about, like you know, a discontinuity between structure and enclosure, or you know, or to do with kind of um, the layering of spaces, or even if they're not, it's still getting their head around being able to understand the plan. Actually, I think Mies is yeah. very straightforward to to kind of show them I think uh, I think they were really really taken with it mm. I think I think I was impressed I mean I'd not been there um, I was really excited and I thought I was a bit nervous that it might fall a bit flat <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but it didn't I thought it was really fantastic everything I mean the suite of bedrooms on the entrance floor are so elegant and really quite simple of course and you don't really see documented you don't see so much. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary it's, um, bathroom in the centre of the plan, lit from above. Amazing tiling. Uh, yeah. It's funny that understanding of buildings from what has been, um, what has been drawn or photographed and presented to you in publications or in lectures, and then yeah. when you go and see something, you realise there's something even better in it that you've just never been shown before. Yeah. And when we were there, actually, the sun came through the onyx wall. So we got that full effect of standing behind the onyx wall and the glow coming through, and uh, it was quite amazing. <laughs> I think, you know, I think it was good for the students in the sense that, you know, it's so easy to relate to a house that you can see where the bed is and where the mm. kitchen is and where the sofa goes. But they were also mind-blowingly good. Yeah. So there's this kind of mix of something that's very easy to get your head around and you have that awe and then hopefully we spent the rest of the year trying to help them understand how you, know, you can do something like that or how it works I remember you've spoken to me before Alex about your technique of only letting them see you know one thing a day sometimes or you know like one thing for half a day it's a kind of very restricted diet not in terms of scope or kind of interest but more just in terms of making them you know sit there and chew their food slowly (laughs) yeah I mean it's partly just because it takes time to understand the stuff and we like them to draw it and sketch it and I think we I think we've talked about this a lot, and we do it ourselves. You know, it's that you make a drawing of something, and you make 
abstract drawing. So you make plans and you make sections and you make you, you might make an area perspective, which you clearly can't see from the viewpoint where you're standing. But in having to construct the drawing, you actually have to understand the building because you have to move around it, you have to make assumptions, you have to check those assumptions. And that process, we think, is really, really useful for a student and was useful for us. Well, that's how we were taught. Yeah, so, I mean, we do generally teach where you see... Uh, it's, it's a very curated, specific number of, and selection of things that you see, opposed to going to a city and, and seeing an array of amazing things. Uh, it's easier for us to make a thesis like that, and it's easier for the students, perhaps, to follow. I mean, I, there are pros and cons, I think, but we like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we tend not to use the field trips as sites, for instance. I think we tend to have the site quite close by. But the, the field trip has a strong thesis, I think, is that clear? Yeah. So we've done that every year. And I guess, that, I guess almost the main thing is that we go and see stuff that we really, really want to see. It's kind of more important, almost. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we've all been on a field trip with tutors who've not even got a clue what you're going to see or enjoying it or anything, but they're just there for the weekend, you know. <laughs> so we're going to see some very weird um, Michael de Click, I think that's what he said his name brick housing in Amsterdam and you know it was kind of interesting there in retrospect but I think we were there for about five minutes before you know we were allowed to wander off <laughs> I mean the other interesting thing just to say about the visiting the private houses which is you know it's normally quite a difficult thing to do to see private houses so that was an extraordinary opportunity um, but two of what three of them uh, three of them are currently maintained by the city as museums. So seeing a house as a museum is quite... Like and, and have been restored. They've yeah. been rebuilt quite yeah. often, especially in Villa Mula. Villa Mula less so, I think. No, I think I thought it was a crash and it was kind of rude. Well, both the Villa Mula and Villa Tugendar have had many lives. Yeah. They've been uh, you know, war office, you know, offices during the war. They've been uh, schools for rehabilitation of children. Various other things, and they've been brought back to houses. But they're not houses, they're museums. Um, the, the, the house by Joseph Frank we saw as effectively a kind of abandoned derelict shell sort of falling apart and leaking and that was also a really interesting experience to walk around a house entirely to yourself almost as though the last inhabitants had just walked out and left 20 years ago um, and the Wittgenstein house which is now a kind of cultural institute mm, and yeah. so that's a very simple idea that these big houses can cope with many many programmes was also something I guess at the same time we've been looking a lot at Lutjen's houses and um, I mean looking quite a lot I would say, studying the plans and so on and of of course it's really frustrating that you can't visit very many of them at all Um, I mean maybe you can, maybe we can organise especially to go and see them somehow but not Once a year or something I think Yeah Yeah, no, it's it's the same when you go and do... um, identity housing projects with students and you quite often they, especially if they're British they might never the students might never have lived in a flat mm-hmm. before so they don't understand what it's like and then you end up you know like phoning up ten people who you think might live in the Barbican to try and <laughs> get entrance into it because otherwise how can you understand how the structure of you know an apartment block and then a flat itself works um, until you've kind of seen it yeah. um, how do you two work when you're in the office do you kind of ignore one another until kind of 5pm and then you have a cup of tea and have a chat about what you've done or is it a kind of constant badgering of one another with drawings and ideas Alex does more ignoring I do more badgering <laughs> yeah generally <laughs> I think we like structure and uh, things to happen uh, you, know, you like to plan I think you like, is that fair uh, yeah I think I'm disorganised and so having a plan really helps yeah 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 I imagine it must be important to have structure when it's, um, you know, when sometimes there's two or three or four of you in the office and there's, you know, one or two or three or four projects on different stages and then you're off teaching and it must be very important to have that. And also, you know, if you're in mental health, to have that <laughs> structure. There was a time when there were a few more people in the office, maybe, where we tried a bit more structure. We have formal Monday morning meetings, formal-ish, well, not formal. Uh, that's pretty much gone mm. yeah so at the start of the day we might say okay so we're going to sit down at 5 o'clock and talk about this or we might say on Tuesday okay let's 
let's do uh, all afternoon Thursday. We're going to go through this project or something. But it's, it's it, is it you know is it it's not a case of um, one of you you know one of you's obviously not the kind of like genius drawing on napkins when you're going to dinner or lunch with the client, and then the other one's back in the office making the you know the kind of the tender and contract drawings. Is it? I mean, it is a kind of. Uh, no, we might both wish it was that way, <laughs> but it's not. No, we both. We, we, no, we both do the same things. We, mm. we both still draw. We both still make models. Uh, we both still talk and write schedules and manage the business. Yeah, and see clients and do everything. Um, and then you fit in the conversations you can around that. Mm. Um, and but I guess in terms of actually how you make a project that. There are, I guess there are different types of projects. The small projects, I would say, are mainly led by one or other of us. With the other mainly, one. and then the other one constantly criti- as a critic. Constantly poking. And there are, I guess there are some small projects where one of us does it up to a certain stage, then the other takes it on to planning, then the other one, but not so many. And the bigger projects are much more both of us sketching, both yeah. of us making models, both of us drawing, trying to find a solution... And they end up being better projects, I suspect. Although yeah, but it's all the, all the bigger projects as yeah, well, I think. Yeah, so they're the, they're the more interesting ones where, I suppose, you start realising the potential and the point of a partnership, that actually it's something... It's it's neither one or other, it's both. It's, it's something greater than the sum of its parts, I suppose. That's a lot of cliches. No, no, no. <laughs> like, Sorry. You know, and I think I've talked to you in the past yeah. about um, this sort of moment in the practice when we did the competition for the Guggenheim and we thought well hang on a minute well I've got there on my own and the answer was very clearly no it was this thing that wasn't something I could have designed um, yeah the whole direction that we've taken is would would have been unforeseeable I think uh, well unforeseeable at all but I think we would be if I had stayed practicing as Dingle Price Architects and maybe Alex had set up mm. Alex, I don't know if we would be doing similar work or different work but it would to each other but it would be very different to what it is to now. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, it would be it would be quite different. I'm sure. I'm sure, and I'm sure that I'm sure without the teaching as well, like we said earlier, it would be very different. Yeah. You know, because you're working on a project, whether it's a small one or a medium-sized one or a big one, and you might have something in your head, and then your partner will come along and criticise it, and it will be infuriating <laughs> for a while. Or sometimes it's like, oh yeah, why didn't I see that? Yeah, there's no way. There's no way you can do it without quite a lot of uh, frustration, <laughs> um, and a few arguments, but not so many actually. Yeah, not so many, but you know, I think you have to sulks, a few sulks. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, uh, but then I think you know, going back to Paul Dinger was saying, there was a point in the office where we had a number of large projects, and we had uh, there were more of us for a while, and, and the dynamic had shifted. Everything felt like. They were working differently. You know, we had to do less drawing on the computer, and you could actually think faster when you're sketching on a pencil or drawing over something. That was an interesting moment. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it changes things uh, in a good way, and I think um, I think uh, we are over ten years post part two. Now, yeah, ten, about, yeah. ten, eleven, whatever. And I think there comes a point where you don't want to. Not that you don't want to, but actually you're not good at making CAD draws. Yeah. Somehow you're, you're, you don't have the focus of attention, um, you've done it too much, you're slightly subconsciously bored of it, in a way. <laughs> and um, it's nice It's nice that there's, a, I guess, generally younger people to come and do that. <laughs> I mean, I, like I'm old or something. But well, you, your 10 years is actually kind of mid-career now, you know? Like 10 years is not mid-career now. Yeah, no, I'm not even that. I'm not no, uh, well, quite. But, I mean, so who makes the models? You both make the models. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, and we both make drawings. Because, I mean, I remember that, there's always that thing about, I think, Chris Sinjin, where Peter Sinjin is a brilliant model maker. He will sit, and from the beginning, at least, in yeah. the early days, they would, one of them would make a model and it would be as big as they could manage. And, and, and Adam makes the drawings and the sketches. Yeah. Um, so you both make the models. Oh, well, so the difference is, maybe a difference to, to Chris Sinjin, uh, is that we don't really make presentation models. So at a certain point, one of us may feel it's necessary to make a model to test an idea, mm. and we just get on with it. We don't, there's not usually much of a consultation about shall we make a model. 
it's usually necessary for one of us to make a model to think, and one of us makes a model. Yeah, we make loads of models. But actually, we don't ever make presentation models. We no. don't show them. We usually don't show them to anyone. And we often wonder why we don't show them. <laughs> and maybe we are going to learn to show people more of the models. Yeah. I remember when I was sat in your office in Davos, I was making coffee, and I did a kind of I wrote down in my sketchbook like a little catalogue of all the different types of models I could see in front of me. It was kind of the really small one to five hundred, one to a thousand kind of site models in grey card. Then it was large scale building models, maybe one to a hundred for clients with only one or type, two types of materials, very clear what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then kind of even bigger models of particular rooms or, you know, one to 50 kind of fragmentary models of a, a particular intersection of elements. And again, there was quite a lot of kind of clear material definition between different elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can imagine, I can imagine, they, I mean, a lot of them did seem like they were actually a part of a conversation quite often, whether that was between you two or occasionally with a client or occasionally with a planner. Um, mainly, mainly, well, I guess. Uh, yeah, mainly between us. Mainly between us. There are. For domestic work, we make a lot of 1 to 25 models and we show the client, and that's really useful. But most of the models for other projects are almost entirely for us. Mm. Uh, almost every project, yes, there's a site model. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think the biggest one we have in our office. The Kalmar project is maybe one to five thousand, I suppose, something like this. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, there are rooms. There are a number of room projects where they're at one to ten. Yeah, and, and lots, yeah, lots, lots in between, I guess. And you, just because this afternoon before we sat down for this, I was going through William Burgess's records for models he made in 1873 of the decoration of St Paul's. And he's trying to pass the cost onto the client. Basically, and uh, you know, is it is it a part? You know, without going too much into the kind of your accounts, is it? You know, do you? Is it just a part of the service? That, you know, that or is it a, well, not a part of the service, but a part of what you think you have to do in order to to, to work as a as a pair? Or will you? Is this, is that will that be the change when you start billing the clients or people for presentation models? Is that the kind? Of, is that a kind of moment of change? Well, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> is it just a, you know? Is it a part of what you do? Do you ever? Um, I mean, I know someone I used to teach with, I know, um, actually asks his client to pay him for, you know, to get a student in to make a model. Right. I mean, clients pay for the materials and Mm. um, they get added (laughs) generally. Uh, And, yeah, I suppose we think about it as part of the service. And Mm. I I think we're quite open with our clients about how we work and where we might want to put, you know, particular care uh, into a project. And anyways, but as part of, well, it depends where it comes in the conversation, but either as part of a pitch mm. or, you know, just explaining how the process is going to work and how how we will communicate things to them and how they can feed back to us. And that, that's where big models can be really, really useful. Well, most of it's process. I mean, most of it is not really for the client. No, no, not in the immediate sense. I mean, it's for the client in the long run. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we feel we couldn't make a series of decisions to respond to the client in in an adequate way, professional way, without making our model. If we don't feel we need to make a model, we can make a judgment in another way, and and that's how we do it, I suppose. Is that kind of a nice segue to the... So with the clients that you have, I wonder if you kind of, you know, kind of want to reflect on the kind of... Some of the kind of strategies or tactics that you, that you have when you're working with clients who quite often um, aren't used to, maybe they're not, you, they've never worked with an architect before, or maybe the budget is low because the budget is going on a, one specific thing and it's kind of ring-fenced. I mean, I was thinking about, I mean, I called it, I wrote in my notes, I called it cheapness, but I think that's unfair. I think it's economy, economy of materials. But, you know, the kind of, the, the MDF that the St. Peter's, uh, church project, the kind of NDIF that you were putting into that, or at the, the OSB panelling, mm-hmm. and the co- the kind of you know mannerist, um, mm-hmm. you know stonework that you were doing, the coins and the channeling, the Whitefriars project, yeah, yeah, um, and the, you know as well the you know the kind of careful use of colour in your work, which is you know, yeah, well I mean colour, uh, lots of questions again, I mean. 
colour, colour cheapness. Colour, yeah, colour can be a response to cheapness, mm. can't it? Because, I mean, if you can paint something white, you can paint it yellow or green or orange or blue. Uh, yeah, we do lots of projects, even the bigger projects that we're doing for we're converting the White Frost project you mentioned is a, con- a conversion of an industrial building into 14 art studios and uh, an exhibition space, and the budget is really tight per square metre. I don't know what it is per square metre, but it's low. It's and all you've got is... Yeah, very cheap materials, a bit of colour. The interesting material we found was wood wool that we make a rustication of. So, what are we saying? It's something that comes out of necessity, to a certain degree, but also, I guess, a way of expressing some kind of ideas. Like, you know, we, you know, what we want. Then we have ideas about what the project can be, and then you have a series of... You're limited in what you can do, I suppose. Particularly on that project, in the... The ceilings were just really high, so the making a bunch of partition walls is really expensive because the ceilings are so high, um, and having to line those partitions just eats up all your money. Um, so working with very thin materials became a thing on that project, and how you can articulate those materials through the edges or through fine relief into something that has a sort of civic presence was really kind of what it's about. Yeah, I guess it's I guess it's about finding where the architecture is in the project. Where you know the artist studios are quite raw, and they are you know not even kind of there's a little bit of fit out right, but it's fairly mi- minimal because yeah, it's minimal. the architect's going to work in it. So it's yeah. you know it's the it's the expression of those new doors on the facade, and then it's the kind of yeah the civic corridor basically, yeah. and then that's where the architecture is. Yeah, it was just an idea about making sure that there was a sense of community or a sense of civicness and. So every all the energy in that project went into that corridor, effectively. Oh well, there is a new facade. <laughs> there is there is a new facade. <laughs> I, I always think it was the facade and the corridor is this sort of one figure kind mm. of yes. armature yes. that holds everything together. Yeah. I, I think I suspect as well that that, that your kind of um, armature and I think there's a, in your in your work so far there's that kind of something that's not really being discussed, which is not you know particularly fashionable at the moment. But he does have echoes in Sterling and Schinkel and other, you know, Cabusier's work of this kind of promenade of scenography, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. armature. Mm-hmm. And I think there's kind of lots of ways it comes out. And it came out, I mean, I, I think it comes out of the Helsinki project, it came out in the Alto Museum project mm-hmm. that talked about before. Um, and this is, this is one of your kind of motifs, I think, that you guys are kind of playing through. Yeah, it's interesting to hear this from uh, <laughs> someone else. I think you're probably right. We don't think of it as a motif. Yeah, we think, we think about it. We think about, yeah, of course, movement through space, how one is drawn from space to space by light, event, colour. And are you, are you, is that something, are you kind of, you know, done with that yet? Or is it, are you, you know what I mean, like everyone has phases of things that they're interested in and move on and I wonder whether that's you're still kind of progressing that to a point or you know it might come back it's a good question question. I mean it feels a bit like a kind of timeless theme I don't know if I'm going to get tired of that but you might you might you might suppress it for a while or it might not be a major theme for a few projects but I think you're you know you're right that it is something that whether we're vocal about it or not is always there so I do sonography in particular Mm -hmm. And in some of the domestic projects that we'll show later, there's also this idea of a journey or promenade, I suppose. Um, but as to whether we're sick of it, I think that's an interesting question. And I would say on a project we've made, a small project for an architecture critic, actually, in Peckham, uh, we made it, it's a very simple project, but it uses colour in a really elaborate way to draw you through a space, to animate a staircase and to make... Um, special room on top um, and at the end of that I did feel hang on a minute let's do a, let's do a project without colour and I started to think about maybe we should do some black projects project, mm-hmm. projects with black in which I think was interesting have either of you been to the monochrome show at the National Gallery yet? no, no. That's, you'd enjoy that then that's, yeah. Uh, yeah you would really enjoy that there's an um, amazing Jura Paint a drawing where he he's drawing in obviously black and white pigment, but he's made his own grey paper as well for it. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, there are not so many black and white projects. The Merkley Studio House from mm. a couple of years ago has a lot of black in black yeah. and white. Yeah, I mean, Lutchen's houses have a lot of black in them. Yeah. Mm. Did loose? Is there a loose house with black in it? I feel like there is. Maybe it's just a black floor, but 
perhaps. Perhaps. Um, and then I was going to say, at the same time, we've been working on several projects where the focus has been a big room. It's not about a gem. It's about making a big room, mm. a single uh, space where everything happens and it has grandeur and flexibility. I guess there's always a journey there, but that is a slightly new thought mm. for us, a new, a new focus. Yeah, and one like the scenography thing that has come in and out of various projects and stuck with something. Yeah. And that's in that's both in the kind of private work and more public work. Um, well, that's primarily in the domestic work. Domestic work, yeah, primarily, primarily. Yeah. This idea of a hall, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. generous living room. The promenade is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What were the other things you mentioned? Color. I've got a whole list of them there. <laughs> Should we go through them? Um, <laughs> I'm sort of joking. No, but I mean, I, I do think, in, I do think, and because also as well, having spent a year teaching with Alex, I know one of the one of the things, the other things I've kind of characterised your work about is um, is ambiguity. So you know, there's kind of the ha- the new house in Cockfosters that mm-hmm. you know it's gone through a couple of iterations, but it's it's um, there's kind of an ambiguity or original and addition, it's about the whole thing being an addition and being new, and the front facade not being symmetrical to the back, and these kind of symmetries is your, the title of your lecture this afternoon, or <laughs> this evening, so maybe that will come through, and then there's the Muse houses and the old brewery in Somerset, where there's kind of, is it one house, two, five, mm-hmm. the image of two chimneys at the end, is it a house at all? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the kind of mirrors to duplicate the space. In the some some Peter in the Forest project, mm-hmm. and then the double villa, the Alexander Thompson project you guys exhibited in uh, Glasgow uh, late last year. Yeah, um, and I wonder where this kind of ambiguity and interest in ambiguity kind of came from. It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. But I, it's interesting to hear hear all this sort of <laughs> back to you. And you know, <laughs> they, um, when you say them, they sound to me like they're sort of they're quite universal themes, and it. It sort of makes you think. Well, isn't, this is great, isn't? It? I mean, you can you can't get bored of this stuff. <laughs> um, this is why you know, this is why one practices architecture. I mean, uh, they're so simple in one sense, but this, they allow so many ways into a project and so many readings of a project. I suppose that's partly this thing about ambiguity is perhaps related to this idea. I don't know. Let's go with it for a minute. I wonder if it's perhaps related to this idea we've been talking about a bit about architecture being accessible to people, somehow being civic, that people can understand what you're doing by using very basic building elements, walls, windows, windows, projecting corners, whatever, but that you can offer multiple readings. It can be read in a high cultural way or a, a very prosaic level. And that, that seems to me, if you can achieve that, then there's a building that is accessible, that's sort of public in a sense. Um, yeah, I think I think it's interesting about buildings, buildings that are legible. There are some buildings that are legible. I think, yeah, an ambiguity whether that makes them more accessible. Or you might argue that legibility makes them. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. sure what I was saying when I was. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. I think of, uh, yeah, I think I think of Rossi in this question. I think uh, with Rossi, there is a sort of li- legibility of typology, mm-hmm. and we are interested in typology, yeah. but maybe in the. As we work through a building, we think through types, but maybe in the end we have to disrupt the legibility of the type so that it becomes something else. Yeah. So um, certainly the Golden Hill Housing Project, uh, it was at one point very legible as houses, five houses. And yeah, we had that desire to somehow make it feel like, is it one house? Is it a factory? So uh, I don't know where that desire comes from. Mm. So it's not unlike a sort of a children's story or a film made for children. That actually, there are aspects of that that the adults can read into something the kids won't get. Yeah. On a very basic level, I suppose. And 
because that's what I was trying to articulate. Yeah, I mean, the idea of ambiguity that opens it up to interpretation is really interesting because if it's less legible, if it's open to interpretation, then it's more of a space for exchange somehow. Mm. Or if it's, you know, conversely, if it's very highfalutin and very kind of uh, highbrow, a very kind of rarefied language, um, that is aloof and perhaps difficult for people to engage with. So, you know, I don't even want to make buildings like that. No, no, no. And I think that's where the Brossi kind of archetypes and legibility of a, of a type in some ways kind of comes back in. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, I always think of that, that old thing, you know, the Colin Rowe thing about modern architecture lacks a face. And I think mm-hmm. quite often you'll, you know, I mean, especially I was going to be talking about the Dale St. Peter in the Fields project about offering a kind of entrance and a clear kind of moment about where building, where the public can mm-hmm, enter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how important that legibility of that moment is to that project and how, you know, otherwise it's going to be a church trapped in the forest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, making a face and, and making a good elevation is also something that we'll talk about this evening, but it's also, I don't, I don't think I drew an elevation when I was a student. It just wasn't really done. Well, students are terrible at drawing elevations. But it's, you know, it's, it's quite difficult. It's really, it's really the difficult. most difficult thing, yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult, and somehow, in many ways, uh, it's the hardest to justify rationally because you're left with, well, depending on the type of building, proportion, mm. tension. Um, yeah, it's very satisfying, but quite tricky. Slippy. So, so the last thing before we kind of just wrap up, the last thing I want to ask you about was so we go into your studio, and you know on the above your two desks, you kind of you kind of sit sit in a, on a desk with space in between you to kind of dump things or to show drawings in between. But then in front of you, there's kind of a number of photographs on the wall, and actually I think those photographs were there since the last time I was there. So you know, like 14 months. So maybe, you know, maybe I've got this all wrong. Maybe I'm reading it for something that, you know, you don't care about, but maybe not. But, you know, there's kind of, um, I think there's a bit of another part there. There's two or three Venturi houses. There's an early piece of Mercury project. And then, you know, I remember we talked about Luce, Mies. We talked about Sterling. We talked about Schinkel when I was in your office the other day. Mm. We talked about Kenwood House. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Arts and Crafts architects, some of them quite obscure. And it's always seems to me that you both you two both have a very non dogmatic, liberal use of reference in your work. And I wonder if you could talk about talk about that and whether that's something you've picked up from someone else or that's just something you're very relaxed with these references. Relaxed in what sense? They were relaxed in that you take the reference very seriously, yeah. but you're quite happy to put it to one side and pick up another book off the shelf. Uh, yes. I mean maybe it's a sterling style for the job. Or was that Gowan's actually? Uh, that was Gowan. Yeah. You, you, yeah. There's different ways of interpreting that. One can be could be an interpretation that we're fast and loose, and uh, that's an interesting <laughs> idea. Um, I think. Uh, I think. Uh, I think we're just curious. I think is yeah. a, is a, is a real question, and I think. Yeah, exactly. Not not that you're fast and loose, because yeah. anything you know, like. Actually, if anything, doing the Venturi study this year, well, Venturi is much more fashionable than it probably was two years ago. Yeah, but you're yeah. like, well, no, well, we're interested in slightly different things now, so we're going to go do those. Yeah, I mean, I think the curiosity aspect of it is definitely true. Um, and I suppose there's an aspect of it where we're just not like interested in inventing anything, <laughs> and you can sort of find it done umpteen different ways. Okay. Um, and that seems interesting, I suppose. Yeah, and there's um, yeah, there's a thing about cultural continuity, uh, about um, yeah, being part of a continuum where you mm-hmm. learn from the past and somehow make new things out of it um, yeah. and add to the pile. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's in, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we take them quite seriously. We we try to understand them, and you know, you redraw them or you make a model. They're not. We don't just stick things together. Mm. We sort of think that's what we do. Yeah, there are sometimes maybe when you feel you can feel like you're just working with the image of it, 
but hopefully the when we use it hopefully one can use it more critically when you're really investigating it and yeah. sometimes it sometimes it's an image quality sometimes it's material sometimes it's spatial um, yeah I mean, maybe that's. I mean, maybe that is something that kind of slightly. And what you know, you're, you're probably you know, you're almost certainly not the only practice at the moment. Beginning, you're quite open with the the kind of references and interests. And I wonder whether that's something that's happening at the moment in British architecture, or has over the past couple of years, where you know, someone once told me before British architecture is like you know, it's Freudian. It was like to kind of kill the father. Mm. And you know, if you you know, you're mm. you're often only interested in one thing. You know, you're only interested in. Corb or Mead, you know, it's very, it's, it's always a kind of dichotomy. And it'll be that for a bit, and then it'll be something else. And then it'll be Sterling in the 80s and 90s, and then it'll be OMA, and then it'll be deconstructivism and Zaha, and then it'll be mm-hmm. something else. Whereas it seems to me everyone is kind of quite interested to accept that, you know, Lutchins is just as interesting as Cockrell, who's just as interesting as, you know, Schinkel, mm-hmm. or Schinkel understood through Sterling, or mm-hmm. whatever, and it's much, it's a much more open discussion now. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't get laughed at in the same way, but, you know, I, I remember the, you know, the London County Council Architects Department, you're either this or that, or at Cambridge, you're either this or that, Mies or Corp, even until, like, you know, the 70s, 80s. So is, there, so is there any type of architecture you think is forbidden now? Is there any, anyone you could mention that really would be a terrible faux pas? If you no. said, I like... Um, I like Terry Farrell. Is that allowed? But Terry Farrell's coming back again now, isn't he? Okay. I mean, you know, high tech is. I mean, high tech, high okay. tech is back. I mean, you know, um, uh, Jane Havert, who's um, dean of one of the other schools here, dean of the School of Creative Industries, I think, is just about to curate an amazing new show at um, UEA in the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Art on high tech. I mean, it's back. And yeah. Farrell and postmodernism is back. But you know, I was reading Architecture Today this morning, and there's a rusticated office building in uh, Clerkenwell that's on the front cover. And I thought, you know, postmodernism is back. It's just being better made now. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the, yeah, the idea of postmodern being back and being better made, I think, is interesting. And I think um, I think some of the critique about Rossi now is. Um, you know, extraordinary ideas and form making and uh, city making, mm. but sort of limited uh, interest in the building of buildings. Yeah, I wonder if we felt a little bit like that about Venturi as we sort of prepared this trip, start to think really how many of these buildings actually are extraordinary to visit. Maybe, uh, maybe not so much. You can learn from them from their plans and from their photography and so on but yeah i guess postmodernism is back i think yeah and i think postmodernism and high tech go hand in hand don't they uh i heard charles jenks recently speak about this i don't know i don't really, I, I don't know enough to really explain but he was putting making a new chapter in his book called happiness and saying that high tech is kind of uh utopian colorful it's about happiness in a similar way to Postmodernism, perhaps. That's very interesting. And going on at the same time, a lot of it. But there is a lot. Of, there is, I mean, it's a slightly different subject. But there is a lot of this interest in forgotten figures. I mean, you always talking about the, yeah. the alternative canon. Is it Timothy Britton Cannon's book on failed architects? Yes, like, slightly yeah, different. Exactly. Yeah. And the, 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 I mean, the, the big one at the moment is the um, Adam Chris and Helen Thomas series. That's from Zurich. You know, the Puyon and Asenio yeah. um, Bender. And, yeah. So there is, there is that in the air, perhaps some sort of race to find the next. Yeah, uh, I don't know how interested we are in that. No, and I, I don't think I, I don't think anyone. You know, that's not not at all what I meant. Okay. Yeah. So in order, you know, just to wrap up, mm. what kind of one piece of advice would you give? You know, I know you both teach every week, but what one piece of advice would you give to students studying architecture? I think the thing I the thing I would say. And this is this sort of comes out of partly my experience as a teacher and partly my experience as a student, was that students should learn to love and use the library. It sounds really daft, but the number of students that sort of don't know how to find something, and it's a, it, it's such a useful skill, and also the sort of just remembering the pleasure of spending time in a library as a student which is kind of a luxury to have that library down there you know you'll miss it when you graduate and you're in an office 
It's not great library. <laughs> does it? Does it? But or you're at home. Yeah. Um, that as a you know as a resource that that, that, that would be the thing I'd say. Yeah. Well, let's wrap that up there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Do take the time to subscribe or to leave your comments, as it all helps. Before signing off, I'd like to thank Laura Evans, as ever, for her work in putting together this programme of lectures and podcasts. And to you, our listeners, I look forward to you joining us in our next edition. Thank you.